There's crispy, and then there's crispy, er. Try our new and improved Tyson crispy chicken strips. Crispy just got crispy, er. Welcome to HBCU 468, brought to you by ESPN's The Undefeated. This weekly podcast looks at life inside and outside of sports from the unique perspective of the Roden Fellows, handpicked students from six historically black colleges and universities. They're young, they're smart, and they are living one of the most unique experiences in American higher education. I'm Bill Roden, and here are this week's Roden Fellows. I'm Ania Shabazz from Grambling State University in Grambling, Louisiana. I'm Isaiah Smalls from Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. And I'm Donovan Dooley from North Carolina A&T State University in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hello, everyone. I'm coming to you from the best city and the greatest city on earth, New York City. And it's great to be back. I've been out west for what seems to be ages. I was actually driving from Las Vegas to Greenville, South Carolina, and then up to New York. Uh, a lot of country out there. <laughs> but uh, we, we've got uh, a really awesome show uh, today. Uh, an awesome show as my producer would say. Uh, first up, Soraya McDonald, the great Soraya McDonald, uh, the cultural critic for The Undefeated. And if you've been watching and reading The Undefeated, you'll see uh, Soraya's column, or not the column, but her stories. Tremendous range, tremendous depth, and uh, going to be looking forward to talking to you in studio. It's been really great. Well, thank you. Yeah. Um, and we're going to be talking uh, with, with Soraya about Coachella and Beyonce. And then, thanks to Mania Shabazz, we're going to be talking to NFL draft prospect and Grambling State running back Martez Carter. Uh, Martez is going to talk about his career and uh, where he wants to go. Uh, Then, we'll end up on uh, talking about one of my former places to get coffee, Starbucks. Rinku Sen, uh, a racial justice activist, We'll speak about what Starbucks is doing to address racial bias in the workplace. But first, uh, let's do something we do every week, and let's get to the biggest sports stories that people are going to be talking about next week. Well, it was just reported that wide receiver Brandon Marshall is going to be released from the New York Giants just because he failed a physical. Yeah. Well, is that good or bad? It's good. Uh, Brandon <laughs> Marshall wasn't doing anything for them anyway. So. Okay. All <laughs> yeah. Right. All right. Hey, Donovan, uh, uh, what, do you, me, what do you think? Well, for me, I definitely think we're going to be talking about how the Pelicans have um, taken the stranglehold over the Portland Trailblazers. Um, they're already up two games to zero, and I think they could close this thing out in five games. Um, I think that Drew Holiday has come out of nowhere to surprise everybody in the league, and I think that'll, that will lead them to victory in this series. I still think that we'll be talking about how Joel Embiid still has yet to play in the Heat Sixers series, which is you know turning out to be one of the best series um, of this playoff so far. But yeah, I still don't think he's going to play yet. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll see. Um, as we mentioned at the beginning of the show, our guest is the wonderful Soraya McDonald, who's a cultural critic for the undefeated. So I'm just curious, are you, uh, are you a basketball fan? Or, I mean, have you been watching the playoffs at all or engaged in any, any way? I have to confess, I have not. No? Okay. Well, I'm sorry. sorry. But I know you've been, you've been, that's okay. 
you know, this is the worldwide leaders. <laughs> yeah, like, I probably shouldn't say that here. <laughs> well, that's okay. It's all good because you've been watching a lot of other stuff. I have. Right? You, uh, tell us. You were um, you had watched Coachella and you watched Beyonce. I did. And you actually wrote about it for The Undefeated. So how did that just that's, any, anything with Beyonce boost our rating? Yes. So, so tell us about Coachella and Beyonce because it was it, it, there was a historic performance there, right? It was yes, there was a historic performance. Beyonce became the first Black woman to headline Coachella this year. Uh, initially, it was supposed to be last year, but then she was pregnant with twins, hmm. uh, so they moved it to this year, which turned out to be great for us and for her because it gave her a lot of extra time to think about what she was going to do with the show. And what resulted was this, basically this wonderfully high energy two hour celebration of HBCUs mm. and drumline culture mm. and black Greek culture. I think that's got to be probably one of the blackest shows that I've ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> you know, and it's interesting because um, if you're a black person who grew up in the South, I grew up in North Carolina. And by the time I was in middle school, because I was performing in marching band, mm. uh, you know, like one of traditions is that you go and you watch the college kids do it. Like mm. We would always go to North Carolina A&T wow. to their homecoming and watch them. Shout out. Shout out. Thank you, <laughs> It just never ends. And, and that, you know, like a bunch of other kids who also took in those same experiences I think it was it's foundational mm. um, you know I think it's the first time that I'd seen so many just gorgeous accomplished black people in one space and everyone's happy everyone's having a good time everyone's just it's a really generous exuberant sort of atmosphere to be in and you know, you would see that sort of recreated in bits and pieces. Uh, I remember when I was in high school, there was a Lucy Pearl album that came yeah. out, and they featured the marching band from Alabama A&M. Or my freshman year of college, uh, Lil' Kim did a song and used the Howard University drum line. But rather than this just being, you know, sort of a feature or like bits and pieces, this is two hours of mm. arrangements for marching bands that are all mm. Beyonce songs, right? Wow. She's got wow. the dancers, you know, like at Howard, we had the Ooh La La Girls. I think Southern has the were Dancing you a, were, Dolls. Were you a Ooh La La Girl? I was not new. <laughs> I I had neither the poise nor the rhythm to be the Lola girl. <laughs> I, I, I just want to say now that you know to, to Donovan, who's always talking about A and T. You know, Soraya was so inspired by what your A and T that she decided to go to Howard. <laughs> Just so you know, you don't you don't make the um, the best decisions. It's okay though. We forgive her. <laughs> Hi, Soraya. Um, I had a question. I'm not sure if you saw a post online from Tina Knowles, but she was sharing with us that she told Beyonce that she was afraid to do this um, big shebang in front of basically an all-white audience because they would be confused by the black culture and black college culture. So I wanted to know, what did you think about it? Because Tina Knowles said that she she was a bit selfish and ashamed after, you know, seeing what type of impact it had on everyone. I think that. That's a perfectly valid concern that she had. I do remember seeing that. 
And it's something that I think a lot of black parents echo to their children in one way or another. I remember when I was a senior in high school and I was deciding where I was going to go, um, I was accepted to the University of Southern California and I was accepted to Howard. And those are mm. those were basically my top two choices. And I ended up deciding to go to Howard. Uh, but my father, who is black, uh, was not necessarily like enthusiastic about that decision from the start. Really? Um, yeah, I, I, a bunch of my aunts and uncles went to North Carolina Central. And I think he thought that I would be limited in some way uh, if I went to an HBCU. Mm. And so what I think is remarkable about Tina Knowles is that she, one, was willing to come forward and say that and also sort of acknowledge the fears that she had for her daughter, but then say how proud she was of her mm. and how glad she was that she was wrong. Right. <laughs> mm. Um, right. She even uh, said she stood corrected at the end. Yeah. So one of the things I was doing, like while I was watching the live stream of her performance was also watching Twitter like everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was, there was one black woman in the audience at Coachella who was basically tweeting that there were a bunch of references that the vast majority of that audience did not get, right? They didn't necessarily understand like why it's a big deal mm. uh, when the band starts playing back right. that ass up. <laughs> you know, they're not necessarily getting like the Pastor Troy references or Outcast, or, you know... The Lift Every Voice and Sing. Lift Every Voice yeah, and Sing. I particularly wasn't getting that. <laughs> right, you know, like, when I saw... <laughs> when she starts singing Lift Every Voice and Sing, like, at this point, my fist just sort of automatically goes up from going to, you know, Howard mm. basketball football game. Right. <laughs> but also, that was a really touching moment, because this is something, I think, that before then had been limited to spaces that were largely black and not because I think we're in any way insular you know anybody can go to an HBCU football game or an HBCU basketball game but this was something that could be broadcast to the world mm. and by doing it specifically at Coachella you know Beyonce is saying that Black culture is mainstream culture. Mm. It's not something that has to be sort of shunted off in its own category, right? She didn't do this at Afropunk. She right. does it at Coachella because, <clears throat> like, black culture is pop culture. That's right. So one of the things that um, I noticed just from viewing social media was that this performance really cemented Beyonce's legacy as one of the greatest performers of all time. So one of the tweets I saw was a side-by-side, -side, you know, comparison of her and Michael Jackson. Now, so I kind of wanted to know, is that um, critique right? Is it true? Where do you think uh, Beyonce ranks in the greatest performers of all times argument? Oh, boy. <laughs> of all time now. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm sorry to cut you off, but I, one of the things that I responded with, I've seen Beyonce in concert. I saw her at Made in America um, two years ago. To be honest, and I'm going to get a lot of flack for this, but I think Kanye West is personally in that category. Because the greatest of all time, creative director. Wait, wait, wait. With who? With who? Isaiah. With Beyonce and Mike and Jay. Okay. Hey. Okay. 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 I'm gonna. I'm gonna let. I'm gonna let Sarai go first. Yeah. And I'm gonna explain to you why. Why I think. Okay. Why? Okay. Yeah. Let's Sarai. Let's Sarai. Yeah. Let's. Yeah, 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 so, <laughs> I think you've hit on something 
that's really important. And I think I think it makes sense that you bring Kanye West's name up because he's such a phenomenal producer. Mm. And that's something I think people forget because now that we think of him as a rapper. You know, we mm-hmm. forget that he was making beats for Jay-Z uh, long before he was doing that. And the thing that the two of them have in common is they have a wonderful skill when it comes to musicology. And that's also what they have in common with Michael Jackson, right? And obviously, like, Michael Jackson was working with Quincy Jones. Mm-hmm. But when you look at those folks together and the music that they're able to make and where their skill comes from, it is a deep, deep knowledge of musicology that I think Beyonce has to fight to have acknowledged in a way that those other men don't. Hmm. Why why is that? Strictly because of gender? I think part of it is Yeah. I think a lot of it is because of gender and because in the music industry, so many female artists are basically presented as a voice and that's it, right? That was Whitney Houston. She was, she wasn't a songwriter. She wasn't, uh, mm. she didn't play any other instruments. She was just a vocalist. Mm. And mm. I think that's why, like, we have so many conversations over whether or not, like, Beyonce should be giving herself songwriting credits. Or just how involved she is in making songs. I mean, I remember there was a video that came out of her playing the piano in her house a few years ago when people were surprised to learn that mm. Beyonce could play an instrument. Mm. Um, <laughs> yeah, but you had Alicia Keys. I mean, Alicia Keys yes. has been acknowledged as a... But Alicia Keys, we've always known Alicia Keys could play the piano, though. That's you know, that, She was that, basically was marketed as yeah. a, a classically trained pianist. Yeah. Mm. Right. right. Nina Simone comes to mind. I mean, mm-hmm. somebody who who's also yep. Uh, but I mean, I don't want to stray from 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 uh, Isaiah's point when we start talking about. I mean, you you mentioned Beyonce, and I'm really sold on Beyonce. Just I mean, her blackness. I mean, she doesn't she does not back away from it, whether it's at the Super Bowl mm-hmm. and, or here. But I think yep. the question was: Is in she in that of conversation greatest. of the greatest of all time? Yes, and I think it's this performance in in particular that makes the case for that. That she's not someone who just goes up and plays a backing track and does some dance steps. Like that's never been the sort of concert that she puts on. She's always, you know, as, almost as long as I can remember, she's had this really amazing all female live band. Yeah, yeah. But they are really skilled musicians, mm-hmm. you know, in the same way that Stevie Wonder is a really talented skilled musician in the same way that you know Quincy Jones is even some of the mythology that we have around Michael Jackson Quincy was willing to sort of dispel <laughs> yeah, yeah, <very laughs> is that you know yeah. like of course Michael Jackson's a genius but you know Michael also had an ear for stealing things when right. he heard something that was good <laughs> right, 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 right. Uh, yeah I think we we have a tendency to to give credit uh, to these folks as if they just sort of emerged fully formed without any influences from anything else. And of course, that's not true. Mm. What do you think about the, uh, I don't know, we're going to wrap up in a couple of, what do you think of the Pulitzer Prize? Uh, um, oh, I was Ken- elated. Kendrick Lamar. <laughs> yeah, with Kendrick Lamar winning the Pulitzer Prize. Isn't that wonderful? It's, yeah. yeah, it's great. I mean, that's I, amazing. I could just imagine that's all the people amazing. grumbling, you know, grumbling <laughs> about that. What do you think about that? It's a, so it's a wonderful step, I think, for hip hop. Um, you've seen all of these sort of 
stereotypically white kind of stodgy institutions that are really making steps to to embrace hip hop in a way that I don't think we could have imagined like even in the 90s, right? Like you have the Kennedy Center adding an entire season of hip hop programming that's going to coexist for years to come alongside jazz and dance and musical theater. You have the Pulitzers giving Kendrick an award and he's the first non-jazz or non-classical artist to win it. And you have Jay-Z, who is inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. So you have all of these institutions now. It seems like the Grammys are seem to be dragging their feet more than anybody else. Yeah, right. Um, right. That are acknowledging the skill and the artistry uh, that's always been present in hip-hop. Uh, our guest has been the wonderful Soraya McDonald. She's a cultural critic for The Undefeated. We're actually going to have yet another phenomenal guest on uh, Rinku Sen will be joining us when we come back and we're going to talk about uh, my former favorite coffee shop Starbucks Listening to HBCU 468. I'm Bill Roden, and I'm on the line with my co-host Mania Shabazz, Donovan Dooley, and Isaiah Smalls. Uh, we're, we're switching gears uh, from um, Beyonce and Coachella to coffee. Uh, earlier this month, two black men entered a Starbucks in Philadelphia for <laughs> for a meeting, and uh, one one of them wanted to use the bathroom but uh, declined to order drinks. Approximately two minutes later, the police were called. One of the men said they were put in a double lock handcuffs, uh, not read their rights, and not even asked if there was a problem with the manager. Uh, the men were arrested on suspicion of trespassing, which was caught on video by a white woman that went viral. The two men told Good Morning America they hope the situation doesn't happen again. Well, yeah. Uh, Starbucks, after much bad publicity and protest, has decided to address the situation by apologizing and closing stores for one day for anti-bias training. Uh, the manager who called the police on the two no longer works there and has received death threats. Uh, Renku Sen is a senior strategist for the Center of Racial Justice Innovation, and she's been watching... Uh, Starbucks Racial Justice Initiatives. Uh, Riku, welcome to the show. Thank you. Happy to join you. Yeah, no, thank thank you so much. Uh, so what, what do you think about the way in which Starbucks is handling this? Um, do, do you think a, a simple apology would have sufficed? Uh, and, and, and does a, a, an anti-bias training show that they are woke? Well, you know, my first reaction to the announcement of the training was go Starbucks. You know, they're mm. Their initial tweet about the incident, uh, once they said that they were looking into it, the apology tweet actually included the word ashamed. We are ashamed yes. of what happened. Yes. And honestly, I can't think of another corporation that's ever said they were ashamed of something that happened that they did wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think moving to a fast decision to actually do something that is going to cost them significant money by closing the stores for a day, that's, that's all positive. That's really good. I think what Starbucks doesn't seem to quite get is that um, to really make the behavior and actions of 
all of your employees different in all of your stores, that requires um, so much more than a day of training. What it really requires is an assessment and then an action plan and all along the way preparing all of the people in your company for the next step in that process. There are very few people who can change their behavior without the system supporting them in doing that, without a, without a container and a structure, a set of rules and a set of um, coaches and a set of um, rewards and punishments that, that continually moves them in, into acting the right way. Um, I don't think that Starbucks is going to get all of that out of one day of training, yeah. but um, it's good that they've signaled their commitment. They've been struggling with this clearly for some time um, since the Race Together initiative of three years ago. And I see them really trying, but they don't seem to ever be able to kind of get to the place where they are um, willing to put the entire company into a racial equity process. Uh, could you just tell us about the Race Together? Um, what is that initiative? Race Together was the Starbucks initiative from 2015. Folks might remember that they made an announcement that for a couple of weeks, their baristas were going to write Race Together on coffee cups mm. to try to um, generate conversation about racism and multiculturalism uh, you know, in Starbucks stores as, as community spaces. And they were they were so soundly criticized for the shallowness of that action and for all of the ways in which it was unlikely to work that they ended that initiative early but pledged to keep doing things toward racial equity, including hiring 10,000 new employees from low-income neighborhoods, for example. Mm. So for at least three years, start. Starbucks has been putting its, dipping its toe into the water of racial equity um, and then kind of jumping back out. And then and now it's been forced to maybe actually enter the ocean. What do you think about Race Together, like your opinion of it? Well, I mean, I, I wrote a letter at the time and I told the Washington Post that racism is a really difficult thing for most Americans to talk about. We've had many years, decades of being told that colorblindness was the right way to end racism. Um, colorblindness turns out to be nothing that the human brain can actually do. So it's, it's hard. People are afraid of it. And um, so you can't approach generating the conversation so casually. <laughs> there needs to be a fair amount of preparation and buy-in um, if it's going to work. And that preparation and buy-in clearly had not taken place. And so um, I, I, I give them points for trying to be creative and deal in their actual milieu, but they need help understanding how comprehensive this effort needs to be if it's actually going to result in change in their company. Could you go into like a deeper detail of what exactly you mean and what, what are some steps that you feel not just Starbucks, but other companies should take as well when it comes to anti-bias training moving forward? So I predict that when this training happens that Starbucks is going to do, all the employees are going to arrive with a different idea of what needs to change. And they, the training is not the place where you figure out what needs to change. It's where you figure out 
what's my role in that and how am I going to make the changes. But if people haven't bought into the idea that something needs to change, then um, the training is going to land on you know, many deaf ears and might actually generate a bunch of less constructive conflict inside the company. When Starbucks talks about implicit bias and, and the world talks about implicit bias, what they're talking about is the kind of racial discrimination that we are unconscious that we're doing. So it comes because our brains make really, really fast associations between certain images and certain judgments. So I see black man, I see criminal. Um, the brain makes that association so quickly, primed as it's been by our media, by messages in our families, by our public education systems, by the movies. The brain makes those associations so quickly that we're not even aware that we made the association, um, and then we're not aware that we have this bias kind of driving our actions. So implicit bias training would be designed to get people to understand that I can cause racial harm even if I don't mean to because my brain is doing these things that I'm not conscious of. Um, there is some debate in this incident about whether the bias was unconscious or conscious. So mm -hmm. how you deal with implicit bias is a whole other story. There are three options, I think. One is you can reprime the brain, which is what I believe Starbucks hopes will happen through this day-long training. Two is you could remove the opportunity. For example, Starbucks could just remove the rule that you have to buy something in order to use the bathroom. They, they mm -hmm. could, in fact, not have that rule, which would remove the opportunity for biased application of that rule. And the third thing you can do is make proactive new rules that create better and more constructive racial impact and is less discriminatory. So all of those three things are not going to happen out of one training. And even the first one might not happen, the repriming the brain, because honestly, it takes constant new messages coming to the brain in order for it to be reprimed. So the best thing they could get out of this training is employees committing to continually look at their unconscious biases and continually give their brains new messages. Hi, you mentioned that you were impressed with Starbucks, not only Starbucks' apology, but them agreeing to close their stores for this training. Do you think that this apology, as well as uh, the racial bias training, will change the way corporations react to these racially motivated incidents? I think that whatever Starbucks does, many, many companies will look really hard at. And I think that Starbucks's apology and leadership would mean a great deal more if they said um, this training is a first step and we're going to use it as a launching pad for a, for a system-wide, company-wide discussion. That, I think, would draw other companies in this direction Starbucks doing something that isn't well thought out that then blows up and makes things worse will probably drive companies away from dealing with race, um, and that would be really unfortunate. Mm -hmm. Our guest is Rinku Sen, a senior strategist for the Center of Racial Justice Innovation. Uh, Rinku, just, just one question before we let you go. Um, yeah, I'm thinking, I'm hearing all this, and of course my first instinct, well, I'm going to stop going to Starbucks. I'm going to stop buying Starbucks. Is that really, um, I haven't anybody heard anybody call for a, a boycott of Starbucks 
throughout the country. But is that realistic, or is that necessary, or is, is what 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 would you say should be the next step of consumers? So uh, I think boycotting is hard to pull off unless you can saturate the customer base of that company. I don't know if that's the case right now, but it's not the only option for consumers. They can also tell the company what they want the company to do, and and we can do that in an organized, active way, too. The other thing that we should be thinking about is Starbucks does also have employees of color, um, certainly has black employees, um, plenty of Indian employees, uh, which is, those are my people, and you know, I've observed some not great behavior going from customers to employees of color as well, and mm. that could be something Starbucks considers, too. Mm-hmm. Our guest has been Renku Sen. Uh, she's a senior strategist for the Center of Racial Justice Innovation. Uh, Renku, thank you so much for uh, coming on and sharing uh, the insights. I'm just curious, what happened to the, uh, I know the the manager is no longer there. Is it because she was dismissed, or it was just because... She just was feeling too much heat, getting death threats. Oh, I don't know if they let her go or left on her own or what, but I think that that probably needed to happen, you know, given the aftermath of that decision. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really appreciate you all including me in Race Forward in this discussion. Yes, and Rika, thank you so much. This This was great. Thank you. Okay. We're going to take a short break. When we come back... We'll be talking with former Grambling State University running back Martez Carter about his career and his NFL draft status. Stay tuned. By the end of the week, the NFL draft will commence in Dallas and dreams will come true. Hearts will be broken and fashion pundits will have a field day. <laughs> Nearly 74,000 athletes play football at the NCAA level, but about 22% of those guys, because as far as I know, no women have been drafted, uh, will be eligible for the draft. Less than 2% will actually make it onto one of the 32 professional teams. So clearly, it's a daunting process. And running back Martez Carter is part of that process. Uh, he's on the line today to talk about his football career grambling and where he wants to go next. Hey, Martez, welcome to the show. Hey, man, how y'all doing today? Hey, it's all good, man. I don't know how things up there, but New York is great. Uh, let's, let's start with your nickname, Mr. Excitement. Uh, how, you know, who who gave you that name? And, 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 I mean, you know, who gave you that name? What what happened? Uh, the school itself gave it to me. One of the commentators saw me playing in a couple of games, and they didn't know who I, who I was or where I came from. I wasn't on the scout report, or I wasn't one of the kids on the recruiting list, but... Every every Saturday, I just showed up and I just gave the crowd what they wanted. So they called me Mister Excitement from that day on. It's just and it just kind of stuck with me. That's a that's, that's a pretty solid nickname. I can't even lie, Mister Excitement. That's funny. But you know what led you to actually come play at Graham? Um, my freshman year, I played basketball. I was at um, Wiley College, but my coach left and he uh, joined the SWAC. Uh, he started coaching at Mississippi Valley. And then the new coach, he didn't renew my scholarship. So, I mean, I had no other choice. So I just came home, and it was Coach Fowler's first year in 2013, and he had heard that I was kind of, you know what I'm saying, just roaming around, not doing anything. He asked me if I wanted to uh, 
walk on and play some football, and I just told him, I mean, fine. So I walked on, and I played cornerback my first year, and uh, and he asked me, could I? And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he put me on kickoff return. I returned a couple of kicks, and that the next spring he tried me at running back, and, I mean, it looked pretty good for me. So returning the kicks, that's where the uh, the nickname came from, I'm guessing? Yeah, um, they put me on kickoff return when we played Lamar and U of H. And I had I had two kickoff returns for 101 yards. Wow! And the next, yeah, the next the next week when, when coach watched the film, I, I had nobody blocking for me, and it was just all self effort. So he he just made me the the starting the starting returner, and 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 those guys started believing me believing in me, and they started blocking for real, and I just had a lot of success in the special team game. So Martez, was that the moment that you saw that you know? possibly going to the NFL could be a reality for you? Oh, actually it was. Uh, I just had a lot of people that just keep telling me things that were repetitive. Man, you can go to the league. Or, man, you could be great at this. Or, man, you could be one of the best that ever come through Gremlin. Man, we done had some greats come through Gremlin. And for those guys to put me in the top five running back, you know, Coach Files played running back, and for him to say that I was one of the best running backs to come through, I don't know. I just it, it just dawned on me, and I just kind of started taking my craft serious, and and I just started, you know, doing what was necessary in order for me to take the next step, which is the NFL. Do you feel a lot of pressure from just the young men that look up to you and everyone at Gremlin that really wants you to make it? You know, I saw you on Saturday signing a whole bunch of autographs, and I often see you doing that. You know, how much pressure does that put on you? Um, it's really no pressure. Um. I've been in a lot of pressure situations my whole life, and I just feel like this isn't one. You know, maybe getting drafted, and you know, because it's so unpredictable. You know, that's probably the only pressure part about this whole situation with me. Um, but as far as pressure with the kids and meeting people and people looking up to me, um, that's just been a lifelong dream for me. I'm, I really had nobody to look up to, so for those kids to look up to me and and just for me to be a role model for those guys, it just it makes me want to be a better me. Hmm. Hey, hey Martez, uh, tell us about, you talked about the road. How hard has your road been? I mean, you know, going from where you, where, you know, where where you were born, where you grew up, how difficult has your road been to get to this point? I mean, uh, I moved out of my mama's house when I was 13, going on 14, stayed with my best friend and his grandfather in a two-story house where it was just us. You know, we just, we did what we had to do to get by. We was eighth graders going into the ninth grade traveling halfway across town just to get to school. I mean, my neighborhood was the best. You know how it is. The best ones comes from some of the roughest neighborhoods. And I was one of those kids that had a a, a tough upcoming. So, I mean, I just made the best of it. And I just have a lot of people to thank for, you know what I'm saying, for coming in and out of my life at those points in my life. Where'd you grow up? I'm sorry. Uh, I'm from Monroe, Louisiana, actually. That's right up the road from Gramley. Wow, Martez, you mentioned a little bit about your uh, about your upbringing there. What does it mean for you to to get to this point in your life now, to where you, literally your dream is literally coming in like a week? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? And secondarily, who all is looking at you, and who who do you think is going to give you a legitimate shot uh, come draft day? I mean, it's a, it's a lot of people uh, just looking at me right now. And- and you know they they doing their job at the end of the day. They calling, they checking on me, and and they just just uh making sure that they they got their foot in the door and making sure they had the right contact number and things of that nature. I mean, it's several teams. Um, maybe all of them, 
but you just never know. The draft is so unpredictable. But, I mean, guys like Tariq Cohen and and Chad Williams, Chester Rogers, they kind of paved the way for guys like me. So, I mean, I do have a lot of a lot of hope because those guys are, are kind of excelling on the next level. So they kind of give me a little breathing room. I remember you were talking with me about um, visiting the New York Jets. Can you tell us about your experience? Uh, the Jets visit was nice. I visited the facility. I took a physical, and I met all the coaches. The players was in the locker room. I mean, it, it was it was it was nice to see the other side. Just what those guys go through on a daily, and I kind of ate with some of the players. And like I said, I met the coaches. Just visited the facility. I think their facility like four years old, so they had like the latest stuff in there. And, and, and I mean, it, it was it was awesome. So Martez. Just looking at some of the greatest running backs of all time, you know, Emmitt Smith, 5'9", 210, Walter Payton, 5'10", 200. Uh, I'm looking at your NFL uh, draft prospect info. You're 5'7", 193. I don't know how accurate that is. But, you know, some would call you undersized. Do you play harder because, you know, people view you in that light? Do you play with a little chip on your shoulder? Um, If I was 6'3", 225, if I was 5'7", 210, which I am, it doesn't matter. I play with the intent to embarrass the next man every down, you know, no matter my size or whatever the deciding factor was, I'm going to play my hardest. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, people always say the reason why I'm not going early is because of my level of play. I don't blame it on the swag, you know. At the end of the day, these guys are getting paid just to play as well as I'm getting paid. You know what I'm saying? You're not signing these guys because they are nobody. At the end of the day, I just have it in me to want to be better, to win. So I, don't, I, I do play with the chip on my shoulder sometimes because people saying the swag doesn't breed a certain level of talent. But at the end of the day, and that's a self thing. I'm gonna ball regardless. Hmm. Hey, hey, Martez, uh, I, I know you gotta you gotta roll, but just, just two two things. Uh, do you find yourself during the season, or just in general, pulling for? You know, guys, or even if whether you played against them or not, who are from HBCUs. I mean, do you feel there's like a a certain bond or kinship? Um, I, I trained with Brandon Parker from North Carolina A&T. Okay, um, he signed first round management, so I've trained with him all the way up until his pro day, as well as well, uh, up until uh, the combine. Um, me and Tyreek, we speak whenever we can. Uh, he was just um, just coming on some stuff that I posted. It's, it's a lot of guys that's from all around. Ebenezer mm-hmm. from Tennessee State, mm-hmm. Darius. You know, it's just it's yeah. just so many guys that I've met throughout this process or played against that that reach out to me after the game and just tell me how good I am, and I tell them how great of a player they are, and just thanks for the experience. But I, I have a lot of great relationships with a lot of players all over, and just to see us guys as HBCU players actually with a chance of getting drafted, I mean, that just kind of brings us a little closer and just give us more to talk about and something to grow from. Mm. Would you do this all over again? You know, you know, I mean, you're, you're going to be competing when you get to the next level with guys from, you know, into these huge schools, Alabama and all that. But given where you are, would you do it all over again, go to the same route, go to the same route that you, you, you've taken? I feel like Gremlin put me in the best position they, they could. If I was at any other university or college, I don't know how it, how it would have played out, you know. They always looking for the next big thing, and I just feel like Graham was always loyal to me. 
Um, I, ha- I didn't have to worry about my spot being taken. I didn't have to worry about scholarship being taken from me. Then they they gonna put best players on the field, and not what the boosters want, not what the supporters want, not not what the fans want to see. Grambling plays HBCU's period plays the best players, and I just feel like if I did have to do it again, it would still be Grambling State University because at the end of this whole process, I don't regret anything that happened throughout my process. Mm-hmm. Uh, our guest has been uh, Martez Carter, Mister Excitement, uh, running back from Grambling. Uh, <laughs> crowd pleaser. Crowd pleaser. <laughs> That's great. That that even has a, that even has a better ring to it. Uh, hey, Martez, listen, man, thank you so much uh, uh, for coming on the show, and and we I know all of us really wish you uh, uh, the best of luck. Um, you know, we 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 spoke to Brandon last week, and uh, you know, we've spoken to a uh, Tariq and all that. And, you know, it seems like uh, HBCUs are kind of getting back on track. In terms of just producing, uh, just a lot of, a lot of great talent. You're certainly next in line. So good luck and, and thanks so much, man, for, for, for being on the show. I, I appreciate you guys for having me. Absolutely. Thank you, man. All right. Thank all right. you. Thank you. All right. Take care. That's all the time we have for the show today. Before we close out, it's the 18th anniversary of the movie Love and Basketball. Uh, hey fellows, what is your favorite basketball love story? Um, I'm going to have to go with Dwayne Wade and Gabrielle Union. They just look so cute all the time. That's funny that you say uh, D-Wade and Gabrielle Union because I'm going D-Wade and LeBron, two of my favorite basketball players. Um, Obviously, you can see the love that they have for each other when they play, um, whether it's on the same team or opposite team. You know, I know y'all saw um, LeBron even give D-Wade dap after D-Wade blocked his shot. So, you know, there's a certain respect and love that they have for each other, and it's it's good to see that on the basketball court. Donovan. Tristan and Chloe. Wow. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with Tristan and Chloe. I can't. I can't. I'm going to leave that there. <laughs> mm. I guess I'd say uh, Shaq and Kobe because there's a thin line. Between, oh, wow. There's a thin line between love and hate. Anyway. <laughs> Yep. That's hey. That uh, listen. Thank thanks for those responses. We'll see. But that's all we have time for today. If there's anything else you'd like us to cover, or if you just want to leave us a comment, tweet us at the undefeated hashtag Roden Fellows. You can contact us directly. I'm at WC Roden. I'm at underscore Mania Shabazz. Um, you can catch your boy at Donovan Dooley. And you, y'all can follow me at St. Claude II. Thanks for listening to HBCU 468, the Roden Fellows podcast. This show is produced by the great Aaron Mathewson. Special thanks to Tarika Foster-Brasby and Carrie Williams. Get all of the HBCU 468 podcast, as well as The Plug, The Right Time with Bamani Jones, and Morning Roast by subscribing to The Undefeated on the Listen tab of the ESPN app. Have a great week, folks. <laughs>